So imagine that there will be a day when the entire choruses of heaven from every tribe, tongue, and people group, they will all be before the Lamb singing in perfect pitch. A melodious, just song where harmony is easy. And, uh, you know, having a choir where they're all gifted and able to sing, you get a little taste of that. And so maybe you need to apologize to your neighbor next to you that it wasn't such a joyful sound, but hopefully it came from a joyful heart. And so I'm glad you're here this morning. My name is Tony. I'm pastor here at LEFC. And we call this Sunday Christmas Sunday, the Sunday before Christmas. And, uh, and so we are celebrating him and his coming today. And we are taking a unique path in, during this Advent season, uh, speaking to things that help us appreciate all the more the coming of the Christ child. So I'm going to actually have you turn to Matthew 1 uh, to start this morning. So if you do not have a Bible, our ushers will be glad to provide you one. And we also utilize a Bible app called the YouVersion Bible app. Uh, and you can go in there into the events tab and find LAFC and tap on that and you'll find the scriptures we're using. With that being said, we are looking at, a, from a unique angle, uh, Christ coming through his lineage, the line by which he came. We spend, again, money to figure out our heritage. We go back, I've been able to trace, just with using Google, been able to trace back about four generations, five generations, and, and uh, finding some unique things about where my people groups ahead of me have traveled this country and, and so on. And I haven't paid the big money yet to go Ancestry.com, but, but it's fascinating to look at the lineage. And as we discovered last week as we began this, this mini-series during Christmas season, that while we can look back and see things, and it tells us a little bit about ourselves, you can't choose to erase your lineage. It is yours. It's given to you. And in many ways, you are the product of it. And in some ways, maybe in spite of it, you become who you are. And so that's just reality of human heritage, right? But when you talk about the lineage of Jesus, God chose the path by which Jesus would come. So literally chose the family. Jesus chose who his line was going to be through. And so when you realize that, it gives you an understanding that appreciates the storyline of who is in his lineage. And it tells you a little bit about the heart of God and therefore very applicable to us today as we are called to be sharers of the good news of God and his son, Jesus Christ. And so let's begin by reading Matthew 1 and the first six verses. And we're going to learn a few things there and highlight from a little bit from last week. So beginning in verse 1, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and, and Zerah, and whose mother was Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Minadab. Aminadab, the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. And David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been 
Uriah's wife. Let me pause there. So we get in this some unique uh, teaching for us in that where, you know, here it is. The Old Testament stood on its own for hundreds of years and then all of a sudden breaking through that silence, Scripture is being written again by the living word, Jesus. And the first words we're given in this New Testament is to say this, that this is the genealogy of Jesus, who is the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So what you see from this, and what we heard last week from Tom as he spoke, is that there are three timeless truths we can see just from reading these six verses. First of all, that God is the God of authoring history. He is the one that outlines everything that has happened in the past. And in particular, when you see what he's done in this lineage leading up to the final name being with Mary, you see that there was special, particular decision-making going on by God to decide who was going to lead to the promised one. So in there, you see the author of the history. You see that Jesus is king when it says Messiah. When you see that, that he is the son of God, and he in particular is the son of David, son of Abraham. He is the royal line that was being prophesied about. So Jesus is king. And then the third truth is this, that God does not show favoritism. God does not show favoritism. In fact, when you look at this line, he can choose, and in every case, in each of those generations, there might have been better options for God based on reputation, based on storyline, based on what we might do to sanitize the genealogy of Jesus. But what you see is a list of people that are both faithful or faithless, likely and unlikely. But there was also some atypical inclusion of five women. Going back in history, Hebrews, when they do genealogy, do not usually include the mothers. Yet every one of these generations, there was a mother. But in this particular line, God allowed to become Scripture so they could teach us some stories. He allowed five of the mothers to be named in this. And it begins with Tamar, which was the result, uh, her child would be the result of an incest relationship with Judah. And so you have this prohibited relationship that is in the midst of this genealogy right here where God has specifically spoken. That should never be. Father to daughter-in-law should never be. And then you get Rahab. And then you've got her. She's always got that tag. Like imagine when we get to heaven and she introduces herself. Does she say, I'm Rahab? And you go, oh, the prostitute. I mean, no, we're, we're not going to want to do that, nor does she want that tag, but yet it's used in both Old and New Testament. And so you've got this shame-filled past of a, of a woman here in Rahab, but it shows something about grace. Then you have Ruth, and she gets an entire letter written about her and her story. But did you know that she's actually Gentile? She's a foreigner, and yet she's included in the genealogy of Jesus. Bathsheba, she doesn't even get her name in this. It's just she's Uriah's wife that is mentioned here. And Bathsheba, this relationship, so the child that, that comes through her that's part of the genealogy of Jesus is the result of her relationship with David, which had angered God so significantly that there was much consequence to that relationship. Yet God chose 
to include her and her relationship with David as part of the genealogy of Jesus. And then it concludes with Mary. A very humble, unlikely choice given that she was going to be the mother of the King of Kings. We'll talk more about her next week, but let's back up and let's look at Bathsheba for a moment. It's an interesting story that you wouldn't think has any relationship whatsoever to the coming of the Christ child. But yet, it has everything to do with it because of what the Christ child was coming to do. So let's go back. I would like you to turn in your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 12. And we're going to look at uh, the story of how God dealt with this relationship between Bathsheba and David that had angered him so significantly. So while you're turning there, let me explain chapter 11, because we're not going to be able to read the entirety of that, so let me just summarize it. In chapter 11, what you have is a story of the springtime when all the soldiers and the armies of nations would go off to war. It was common and most common and traditional that the king would join the armies and lead the armies into battle. Was not required, but was traditional. And for David, he was one that usually led the armies. And so for whatever reason, we're not given a whole lot to the background of this. David chose not to go. And we can see from the text, was not wise on his part to not join his soldiers as they went off to war. Because he stayed behind, and as he was at his residence, walking along the roof line, he took notice of a woman that was bathing uh, on a, a home nearby. And so, you know, often these places had an outdoor area on top with canopies and so on. And typically, those canopies were covered. But for whatever reason, on this day, Bathsheba, this woman, the wife of an incredible soldier named Uriah, was bathing on that roof. And David took notice. And he was tempted towards that relationship. And as a result, he, drew, he invited her over to his place by his own servants, causing them to be guilty in this. And so they invite her into the household. And as a result of that day, she became pregnant. Now, this may, again, seem like, why are we talking about this during such a Sunday? But we're getting there. So this relationship has now happened, and David panics. He wants to cover over the sin that he has committed. And so he calls for Uriah to be brought back from the front and to leave the war and to come back to be with his wife. But Uriah kept staying loyal to his fellow soldiers, and he refused to go home. Twice, David created stories that, and narratives to entice him to go home, and he never did. David was so desperate to keep his sin quiet and out of the light that he then sent a letter to the commanding officers of the army to then have Uriah sent to the front. And then when the horn, when the horn would blow, that they would withdraw and leave Uriah exposed, so therefore... Uriah would die by the hand of the enemy. It was murder. So you have adultery, the first sin. Then you have lying, lying to the people, lying to the family. And then you have disloyalty to Uriah, who was very loyal to David and to the army. And then you have murder. All of this to cover over sin. 
Now, this is not what we know about David. Up to this point, David's story was he was a man after God's own heart. It's already been said, a man after God's own heart. And he had written so many psalms of praise towards God. And, and God had given him incredible victory and incredible success, not only in the battlefield, but as a king over the nation and within his own household and his family. But now David has sinned greatly. And when you, when you want to know how God felt about it, that's where we get in chapter 12. So let's begin in verse 1. It says, The Lord sent Nathan to David. And when he came to him, he said, There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle. But the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it, and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food and drank from his cup and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David burned with anger against this man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. So, David's response would be what any of us would have. Imagine you have a person who is poor and has a single lamb that they had purchased. And then raised as a pet, where this was no ordinary land. This has now become a member of the household. And it's all they have. Somebody who has so much, so much, when troubled by a traveler coming by, doesn't want to take of anything of theirs to meet the traveler's needs. Instead, takes the single pet, the ewe lamb, from this poor person. And then fed that to the man who was a traveler. David rightfully said, in anger, this man deserves to die four times over. Anger had filled David's heart. This is, this is not just. This is not just. And only death would pay for this. All right, so David's captured God's heart in the moment. So let us understand that how David responds to this story is while God is feeling in his heart and is ready to respond to David and Bathsheba's relationship and how David handled Uriah. So let's continue on. So David has just said, this man deserves to die four times. So then you get, I'm sorry, must die and must pay for this lamb four times over. And then verse 7, Nathan said to David, you are that man. Whew. Cuts to the heart, right? Because he's just declared worthy of death and should pay four times over. And David, Nathan, who is a prophet and is a friend of David and had partnered before, is now saying to David, you are that man. And this is what the Lord God of Israel is saying to you. I anointed you, David, king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms, and I gave you all of Israel and Judah. And if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. 
Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you have despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I am going to bring calamity on you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to the one who is close to you, and he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, The Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. But because by doing this you have shown utter contempt for the Lord, the son born to you will die. David now has to deal with his sin is now in the, now in the open. Truth has been revealed. He is caught. It's interesting what sin will do to us until it's revealed and brought into the light. David was not one to want to go and kill somebody like Uriah that was one of his loyal soldiers. That was counter to his character. David was also not one to take things for himself. He was always selfless and sacrificial. But somewhere along the line, Maybe the songs that he had heard that David had killed his thousands and hundreds of thousands had gotten to his heart. And that his heart had now become very calloused and unaware of sin that's starting to creep up inside of him. And as the sin began to grow, then he became tempted and did that which is hardly speakable. And then he begins to cover it over. He's not just admitting, I, I made a mistake and pay for that mistake. He starts trying to cover it over so he doesn't have to do it. And then he gets so caught up in the narrative of covering his own sin that he kills one of his best soldiers to keep it covered. You see, sin keeps manifesting stronger and stronger. The initial deceit, pretty easy to try to pull off, but it wasn't working. The second deceit, again, difficult, more difficult now, but still possible then to pull off murder the way he did to cover it over it's saying something and it was going to be known eventually somehow some way but to for God to send Nathan had to cut to David's heart and so when Nathan says you are that man and then he feels completely caught David's only response was to say I have sinned I have sinned against the Lord. Typically, when we catch our sons and daughters in doing something wrong, they might, when, they, when the evidence is abundantly clear, they'll be like, yeah, I did it, but... And then they explain why it wasn't as bad as you think it is. Right? That's the natural propensity of sin. We want to qualify our sin. Give explanation why it's not as bad as you really think it is. But when your sin is adultery, lying, and murder, and it comes out very specifically that God knows and that he sent a prophet who now knows, there's no hiding. 
And he didn't qualify it. He just said, I have sinned. But there's something here that I think is then part of the genealogy of Jesus that we need to hold on to. And that is, Nathan says, the Lord has taken away your sin. He has taken away your sin. He has forgiven it. And to forgive is to release from the penalty of the sin. Now, you need to remember, God did not release the consequences of that sin. He merely forgave him the debt. So the relationship between David and God will be forgiven and there will be a restoration of that relationship. But the sins and the consequences are going to continue forward. And what he said was going to happen is now the sword won't depart from your house. There's going to be an internal conflict going forward that's between his children. And then you'll see also later in his life that there is going to be a point where one of his own sons is going to do a coup and dethrone David. And is going to do unspeakable things in the broad daylight to mock his father. But probably the worst thing said of all that was consequential to the sin was that the son that was the result of that sin was going to die. Meanwhile, though, in spite of those consequences, which we don't always know what the consequences are going to be of our sin, David was given almost a curse to, be, to hear what they were going to be. But God forgave. Where the relationship between him and us can be restored. Where the eternal consequence is removed. So how does David respond himself when caught by sin and and how should we respond if we're caught in sin when light finally shines on that which you've kind of been hiding and that which you have allowed to grow and fester inside of you what should you do when sin is revealed i want you to turn your bibles to psalm 51 David, a psalmist, writes psalms in the midst of some of his journeys. And we know, like the psalms he wrote after he killed Goliath. We know the psalms he wrote while he was in working as a shepherd with the sheep. We know psalms when he had conflict within his household. And that will be later when Absalom defies him. But he wrote a psalm in response to being caught in sin and confronted by Nathan. And it's Psalm 51. Let me read the first few 14 verses. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin are always before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. 
Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors, other sinners, your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God. You who are God, my Savior, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. How do you respond when caught in sin? I think David gives us a very good example. He begins with confession. I mean, it's one thing to confess when your sins were not revealed yet. That's the healthiest. Probably has lesser consequences as a result. But he confessed, yes, indeed, I have sinned. And then you see the repentance side of it. When his mind is already turned, he now looks upon his own sin, not with justification, not with qualification, but he looks upon his sin as horrible in the eyes of God. His mind has now seen truth for what truth is. And he is turning because now he is turning to saying what he wants. Instead, what he wants is he wants to be made righteous again before the Lord. So he seeks forgiveness. He acknowledges, I have sinned against you, Lord, so forgive me. But the cool thing that he does after that, and this is where I think we have a lot to learn from David, is not only did he confess, I have sinned, and not only did he repent and saying, I want to go a new way, help me go a new way, but then he asked God to restore that which was so deeply broken in him that caused him to sin in the first place. He asked for restoration. He says, Lord, create in me a new spirit. Create in me a new heart. And restore joy of my salvation to me. So the asking for restoration, after confession, after, after repentance and seeking forgiveness, asking then for God to make you new so that you don't repeat the sins of the past is a step we often miss. Yes, we turn and we look upon our sin differently and the repentance aspect of that and we seek forgiveness and we receive that forgiveness, but should we not also ask, so God, whatever that brokenness is that keeps making that happen, fix it, please. Restore it, change it. And then in verse 13, did you see what he said there? He says, after you restore me, and I've experienced your forgiveness, and I've turned and I'm going a different way, I will teach other sinners of this God who forgives. Because God forgives. God has a heart for forgiveness. And, we're to, and he says he commits to teaching that. And we know that God did forgive, especially forgive this relationship that had become a stench to his nose. Because in, in verse 24 of chapter 12 of 2 Samuel, Bathsheba and David have a second child. And this child is Solomon. And God says, I love that child. And he allows Solomon to be the one that he is going to bring peace to the nation of Israel and build the temple of worship. It has to take an amazing amount of forgiveness, mercy, and grace for God to say, I am going to allow this relationship 
David and Bathsheba, that has caused me great consternation in my soul. I am going to allow this relationship to produce another child by whom I am going to choose to build the very temple of the Lord and to be the one through whom I will send the Messiah. God forgives. The consequences still came, but God forgives. There was blessing that came to David and Bathsheba in spite of the past. God forgave. You see, God's heart of forgiveness is at the core of the gospel that operates now and is what we are to teach. What we read in Psalm 51 actually mirrors something that John writes much later. In 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, when it says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Restoration. We miss it because the word's not stated. That purification that happens, that when we confess, God forgives and then he restores. He purifies. That's the gospel in a nutshell. And it happens in, in, in coordination with what you see with David. When he says, I have sinned, I need to go a different direction, restore the joy of my salvation so that I may teach others that there is a God who forgives sins. So what do we see in this story of David and Bathsheba that also connects to 1 John chapter 1, verse 9? Is that there is a rhythm of the gospel that teaches us how we can be renewed each day. Because we know in 1 John chapter 1 that sin doesn't just leave us. We're still sinners. In fact, in 1 John 1, John says, if you claim to be without sin now, you're a liar. So nobody in this room can claim to be without sin now, which then means you're still in need of moments where truth is revealed in your life so that you can confess that sin, repent of that sin, bring it to God, and then ask for his restoration in your life. So what you see here is there's a rhythm, and it begins with truth being revealed. You see, the gospel message is the message of truth. And what it reveals is that God is a loving God and who is desiring a relationship with us and to save us. That's part of the truth. But it also reveals in that truth, you are not God and you are not like God, even though God wants that relationship with you. And you can't be in a relationship with God unless the sin that is in you is removed. And that sin can't be removed unless you, by faith, trust in the work of Jesus Christ. So truth must be revealed in our lives first. That's where gospel comes into play. It reveals who God is and who we are and that we're in need of him. Secondly, the gospel rhythm is this, that when truth is revealed, it should cause us immediately to say, I'm a sinner. I'm a sinner. And then to repent of that pattern and say, I don't want to be that. I want to be this and, and draw me into that. And so we repent of the pattern and then we seek God for restoration. 
Isaiah, when encountering the throne room of God, God opened the curtain of heaven and let Isaiah take a peek in. And what did Isaiah immediately do? He cowered back from it and said, Oh Lord, I am a man of unclean lips. I am not worthy of being in this moment. And then it was God who sent an angel to cleanse his lips. The pattern of the gospel has been going since the time of Genesis. And that God wants to reveal the truth of our condition. And he wants us to confess that condition to him. And then repent of that pattern. And then let him restore us into something new. And then, that's not just for your sake. Just like David was able to discern that if God forgives you, it's not a story to keep to yourself. It's something you need to tell other sinners about. Because they're in need of the same revelation of truth in their lives. They're in need as well of the opportunity of God to forgive them. And they're in need of the restoration God can bring. And unless you tell them, they won't know. So when God does that great work in our lives, we then proclaim the forgiveness of God to others. In fact, Jesus calls the gospel message this, the very thing about forgiveness. And when he says in Luke 24, he says, I, I tell them that this is what is written, that the Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be what is preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. So what's going to be preached to all nations? That God forgives the sinner. God forgives the sinner and forgives people. That's part of the story of the lineage of Jesus. In that he included a relationship that had caused a great anger in the belly of God. And yet God, in spite of their great sin, forgives and restores. And as a result, a temple of worship is made towards him. And a line that goes directly to Jesus is now written where we can have hope. Most of us have not committed adultery. Most of us have not lied to cover adultery. And most of us have not committed murder. But yet God took a very relationship that, that produced all of that transformed it, and brought about something beautiful. Let God do that work today in you. Would you join me in prayer? Father, I recognize that it is no small thing, the sins we've committed. And we would say the sins of David were greater than anything we've ever done. But is it really? Have we not committed adultery in our hearts when we choose other idols in our life over you. We pursue money and wealth and, and possessions over you. We choose to defy people and by what they might do for us, we don't give. We're like that rich person who took the poor man's you to serve another. God, our hearts are filled with sin. And we have cleansed ourselves in our own eyes by saying we're not that guilty. God, we're in need of the revelation of truth in our lives. We're in need of the gospel to restore us. We're in need of your forgiveness. So would you do that work in us so that we can not only be restored, but that we can proclaim and tell of this good news to others. So I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If God is speaking to your heart this morning and you feel like 
I've got some stuff that I need to get out before the Lord and confess. We'll have people in the encounter room at the, at the end of the service that would be glad to pray with you and to talk with you. God wants to restore you, and you can begin that process even now. And so I don't want you leaving without experiencing the gospel this morning. But let me conclude this message with a benediction for you all. So can you please stand? And I give you the benediction given by Paul to the church of Colossae when he says this, For this very reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding his spirit gives so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work and growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might that you may have great endurance and patience and giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of the darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. That is what we proclaim. Amen? Let's conclude this service by proclaiming the good news of our Son.
Christmas. We are so excited to be with you today. We'd love to see you again for our Christmas Eve services on Sunday at 11, 3, and 4.30. Church, we love you. Thanks for singing with us. Have a Merry Christmas. You are dismissed.